Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's good to be with you. Um, it's actually a real, a real treat. I feel it in my spirit. I'm going to make just a couple comments about that here in just a second. But um, let me just fill out that story uh, that Yuri told. And by the way, I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know Pastor Yuri and just meeting Amanda, but uh, Zach, the family, uh, I, f- I feel very much welcomed here, very much at home. My kids came to me exponentially. <laughs> Let me explain that. He, he gave you a little preview, but I'll, uh, you know, my wife and I, my, uh, as is the way of things, after we had been married three or four years, along comes baby number one. Well, that's kind of how it happens. Uh, I won't go into why it happens that way. I see many of you with kids. I assume you know. After a couple years, baby two comes along. Okay, so that's one to two. That's normal. My wife, after a few more years, got pregnant again, this time with twins. So that was one, two, four. And then, uh, sadly, uh, after a brief battle with cancer, she passed away many years ago. I had four boys under the age of 11 when she died, and God uh, miraculously and thankfully brought a fiery red-headed widow who also had four kids into my life. We fell in love, and this year, actually, we just celebrated, uh, this is the year that we've been married to each other longer than either of us had to our previous spouse. So we've been married to each other for 16 years, and it was just shy of 16 years uh, for our previous spouses. But I went one, two, four, eight. Now, if you are a decent mathematician, you'll know what the next number is, and you'll know exactly why we stopped. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, this is just a little hot for me. Can, you, can we back it off just a little, please? Uh, I, being here this morning, I, uh, I feel a couple of things. Number one, I, I, I love it, but I also go a little bit into panic mode when I get someplace, and all of a sudden I want to preach about five different messages. And I think, am I, am I preaching what I need to preach? Because this feels right, and this feels right, and this feels right. And I'm sitting there praying to the Lord saying, God, I'll, I'll, I'll change direction all of a sudden. I, I actually threw them a curveball. I, I didn't come thinking I was going to preach on what I preached on, and then I dumped some stuff on the media team. And, uh, but the reason I say that is actually uh, it's meant to be a compliment to a body that I believe is ready for many, many things. It, it, I, I feel it pulling on me because the doors are all open. And you can go to many other fellowships. I've been to many, many. And you feel like, man, there's about three things I could preach here and about ten things I probably shouldn't. And uh, I don't feel that here. I feel a, a, a robust and rich and ready a longing, a, a depth, um, so that's just one comment. The second one is, man, the drums were anointed today. Wow, where is that brother? Who, who was the drummer? Where is he? Uh, if I wasn't a man and you weren't a man, I'd come give you a kiss or something probably, but <laughs> I might do it anyway, so just be ready. No, this would... that. There was something on the drums, and, uh, and the whole worship set was, was wonderful, but I was sitting there feeling the Lord say, it's because they're getting new marching orders. And that's what, you know, marching orders is, there's something from uh, central intelligence, from uh, command central, where... It's like we have this to do or this to do. And so you deploy the forces and they go on the march. And in old times, they would go to the rhythm of the drums. 
They would go to battle to the rhythm of the drums. And I felt the rhythm of the battle here today. Then, then Uri came along and, and added to that with battle against cancer, but it was already happening. It's already happening, and I feel that uh, what I want to share today is, uh, uh, it's going to add to that. It, it may not all entirely be new, I don't know. It may be entirely new, it may not, but I think it's going to feel, I think it's going to resonate with you, uh, because it's, even if it's not new, it's going to add language that you haven't maybe seen before. And if it is new, it's going to open your eyes to what I believe the Lord wants to do right here uh, with this body of believers because you're ready and because the times demand. The times really demand that we start thinking about our mission differently. The church has been in a 500-year period of reformation, I know I'm among uh, uh, many that come from the rich tradition of the Anabaptists. And that was the radical reformers. So there's, there's a reformation spirit, I believe, among you. I feel that. I feel it. But I don't yet, I, 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 many places I go, I see there's that readiness, but they don't really know what it, what it means yet. Because our paradigm is so boxed into what church has been for hundreds of years. And I think the Lord is uh, allowing things like COVID. I don't like COVID. I hated COVID. I was very glad to hear that you guys remained open all through COVID. I think there's a dark agenda behind COVID. I think it is demonic. But I also believe the Lord in His kindness, the way He can take something intended for evil and turn it to good. I don't know of anything in my lifetime that compares to the last two plus years of COVID that has gotten the, church, the church's attention and said, you aren't ready. You aren't ready for what's coming. Because this isn't the end. There's going to be more authoritarian overreach. There's going to be more pressure there's going to be more uh, reason to forget who we are and back away and then wonder why the world is sliding, not slowly into hell, but rapidly. And so I want to bring a message to encourage you, to strengthen you, and to help maybe make sense in the spirit of what the war drums are about. Is that all right? Amen. I like people that talk to me, so you all talk to me like that. Don't throw things, but... <laughs> Turn to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 15 or 16. I don't remember which. I think it might be 16. No, I think it's 15. There's a promise given to Eve. I'm going to read most of these, but if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to look at it. Right from the very beginning... The deed of uh, uh, sin is not even finished, and God is signing his name to the solution. So Genesis 3, God pronounces a curse on the serpent. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you, your seed, and the seed of the woman. And her seed is going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Now, that does not sound like a pacifist God to me. It's chapter 3, the enemy has invaded. The enemy has already spoiled and defiled the image of God and the work of God. And God's answer is, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to crush you. And he actually is more specific than that. He says, I'm going to empower them to crush you. It's the seed of the woman. That means it's going to be a human. The seed of a woman is a human. 
And the brilliance of God, we know Jesus is fully God, fully man. But we sometimes miss that he's fully man. The seed of the woman came to restore the dignity and authority and privilege that was built in Genesis 1.26. He shall have uh, 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 male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.26 and 28. And it's the, uh, it's the Genesis mandate. It's a rulership mandate. You shall have dominion. You shall rule. You shall be fruitful and multiply. It goes over five or six phrases in that one passage where God is establishing the sphere of authority that man has. It's over all of creation. We're meant to multiply. I've got, I just gave you a testimony of multiplication in my family, right? I went from one to two to four to eight. That's multiply. We're barely inching along hoping for some addition. And God says, no, actually the way I want to bless you and establish you in the earth is to multiply your influence. That's not just through your children. It's through his covenant with you that brings uh, blessing, it brings favor, it brings anointing to get the work done. And out of that, you're going to rule, you're going to have dominion. Satan comes in as a serpent. He, 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 uh, he doesn't take the thing from Adam and Eve. He causes them to forfeit it. He gets them to abdicate. And immediately, God is back there saying, this is not going to go well for you. Because I'm going to actually restore them to their place. And by the end, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Well, this puts in motion a line of prophetic activity that... I'm a pacer, guys. I gotta, I'm going to have to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the, that I'm going to fall here. So, I, By the way, I do get paid by the mile. So this is, you know. <laughs> right. So Isaiah 9 comes along. There's actually a lot of prophecies. I'm going to concentrate on just a few. You may have heard a message before on the scarlet thread of redemption. They start in the same place in Genesis 3. The scarlet thread of redemption where it is the, the, uh, the prophesied Messiah who will come and, and bleed. The kinsman redeemer who will give his own blood sacrifice. And the scarlet thread of redemption has uh, uh, many prophetic strands and verses. But I'm going down the purple thread of dominion. Okay? There's the scarlet thread of redemption, and I'm giving you the purple thread of dominion. It's the kingly promises. It's the rulership promises. So Isaiah 9 is one of those that's echoing what Genesis 3 said, because that one hasn't come yet. Even in the time of Isaiah, the Genesis 3 promised man hadn't come. And so Isaiah in chapter 9 says, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son must be given. What I hope today is for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to touch our eyes. For our understanding to be enlarged so that we can See Jesus as the son who had to be given. The child that was born is picking up on the Genesis 3. Isaiah saying, he's not here yet. But because God has promised the answer for crushing the serpent's head, he must be given. And, and... He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father... And all these titles, the government will rest on his shoulders. This isn't just a savior, it's a ruler. And he comes with a government. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Well, that's glorious. It's... it's 
It, it enlarges our understanding. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. But what we sometimes miss is that he comes with a government. We, we kind of assume the lordship thing just takes care of the issues. But if it did, then it wouldn't specify that he is also going to establish a government. And a government involves other people. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to stop right there. That government is going to rest where? On his shoulders. It's going to increase forever, and of peace there shall be no end. Well, for Isaiah to acknowledge that peace must expand is concurrently a revelation of the present reality of war. Right? That makes sense. If peace is going to increase through the influence of this one who's crushing the serpent's head, then we are meant to understand the world is not right now at peace. And in the church, we have lost some of the the storyline of the ancient cosmic war. Right now, we're sitting comfortably in one of the most blessed nations that's ever existed on the earth. It has afforded stability and privilege. We have air conditioning. We have lights. We have a a number of modern conveniences. We drove here in cars. And and we're, we're sitting comfortably on these padded chairs. And it's easy to forget that the world is at war. It's raging. It's been raging for 6,000 years. It started in the garden, which is why... The Lord promised the one who's going to bring peace. And Isaiah said, we've got to get that son because he's going to bring a government with him. And the increase of that government and a peace shall never end. Which is to say, he's going to come mightily and strongly in his rulership and with his government to combat the forces of evil and establish peace. Let's pull up that first slide if we could. I want to give you, are we able to do it? We know in Hebrew the word peace is shalom. And shalom has a certain uh, meaning. It's a really rich word in Hebrew actually. They would greet each other shalom. In the New Testament, In the New Testament, all of the epistles begin and end with grace and peace to you. Grace, the dynamic of the new covenant. Peace, the the Hebrew word. It It was Jew and Gentile concepts wedded together, grace and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, peace is shalom, and and it's it's the word that uh, Jews will still greet each other with today. But it's not just that kind of fuzzy idea of, well, I'm feeling peaceful. I'm not stressed. I'm peaceful. No, it's actually like total wholeness. Peace and safety and stability, prosperity, well-being. It can have those feelings of security and and safety. But it's this aggressive kind of idea that when you bless someone with shalom, you aren't just saying, I hope you... Don't have a stressful day. You are ministering to them a word which conveys the total wholeness of God. Well, that's the definition. That's the definition. And, you know, when we talk about peace in, a, in, in kind of a modern understanding, we tend to think of it as not being at war, as harmony between people, as security and freedom from violence. State of serenity and tranquility. That's all good. It's all true. But here's why. It's not just... Next slide, please. The Hebrew language, as most of you know, is an alphabet that is pictographic. And so the the individual letters come from a picture that had its own meaning. So while shalom, the definition of shalom, was what I showed you, the characters themselves, Mem, Vav, Lamed, and Shen, indicate 
An authority to destroy the authority that establishes chaos. That's what's embedded in the word shalom. The Hebrew spelling of it means there is authority to destroy the authority that establishes chaos. Well, I want to keep going. I'm going to to circle back to that, but not right now. Three revelations of God's nature that I want to briefly touch on. And I'm heading towards Matthew 16. There's dozens and dozens of names of God and, and, and aspects of God. But I believe three we are going to see and need to understand more and more of is God as bridegroom, king, and judge. The bridegroom who loves the beloved, the great lover of our souls, the fire in his eyes is his love for his bride, the old song says, that vineyard song from years ago. God as a bridegroom thinks relationally. We in this room, men and women, are corporately beloved of the bridegroom. We are meant to have an intimate, heart-level relationship with him. He is stirring something in us to trust him, to follow his leadership, to lean on him, experience his love, and love him with equal abandonment in return. I hope all of you have the kind of marriage that is a passionate relationship between a man and a wife. A man's passion for his bride, a bride's responsive passion for the man. It is the highest and best that we are meant to live in and there's joy inexpressible and full of glory when it's there. And God is doing that to produce a worthy mate for his son for all eternity. Well, that's the bridegroom. A bridegroom thinks relationally. God as judge thinks legally. He measures his response in the balance of justice and mercy. He's perfect in the administration of justice and mercy. But God is king. So God as bridegroom thinks relationally. God as judge thinks Legally, God as king thinks territorially. God as king is looking. We just, we just crossed the line of uh, uh, the, the passing of Queen Elizabeth after 70 years as the monarch of England. And she presided over the commonwealth at its height. I don't remember how many nations, but it was said the sun never set on the British Empire. Because in every time zone, there was a nation that was part of the commonwealth. Why? Because it is the impulse of kings to take territory and to protect territory. Now we could go into the, the, the broken ways that human kings abuse that power and the dangers of colonialism and imperialism and all that kind of politically correct stuff that I have no interest in right now. Because it is actually the royal impulse of kings. It manifests in humans wrongly, but it only manifests at all because God thinks territorially as a king. And he wants his planet back. At the end of the story, every square inch will come under the dominion of Christ. Psalm 72 says, Give to the king your righteousness, O God. and Give to the uh, king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. You skip a few verses to verse 8, and it says, And he shall have dominion from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, it was a, 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 a Jewish colloquialism for he's going to rule it all. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will have representation before the throne. Every people group will have a witness of the gospel. And there's not one square inch of earth at the end of the story when he returns that's going to say, this little patch of land doesn't belong to you. 
It all belongs to him. That's the story. And that's where we're going. It's interesting in thinking territorially, that means we actually have to think in terms of inches and acres. It's not just nations. It's not just cities. The way cities and nations come under the dominion of Christ is when bodies of believers and families and people take responsibility for their inches and acres. And it all adds up to we wrestle out of that same territorial spirit for ground that belongs to him. And if the enemy has occupied that ground, we learn to serve effective eviction notices. And we use the authority that he has given us to dispel and disperse and command powers of darkness to vacate the land because they're squatters, they don't own it, it's not theirs, but they'll remain there as long as we allow them to. There's a challenge rising up. It's why the drums matter. God made a covenant with Abram. He said to your descendants, I have given the land. He told Abram, walk it all wherever your foot Wherever the stride of your foot, wherever your foot lands, I've given that to you. So see, it's not just God's. It's God's through his people. The heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. And so the covenant kind of relationship we, we have with the bridegroom equals passionate response. With a judge means we're engaged in mercy and justice. But with a king, it means when we walk the land, we have to think like the king thinks. This is my land. And when I take it, I take it because it's his land. I take it so that he has ownership of it and the enemy doesn't. So we have to think territorially privilege and functions of kings is to rule. There's so many passages that talk about the restoration of the land. Isaiah 58, Isaiah 49, multiple passages. Jesus sending the disciples out across the land. It wasn't just to minister to the people. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven because they were kicking demons out all over the place. Kings administrate through covenant and decree. They wield authority and martial resources for the sake of their land. They recover stolen ground. There's not a king in history that has easily abdicated territory. Kings fight one another. They jostle one another. The Assyrian Empire rises up against the Babylonian Empire. The Persians come in. The, the, the Greeks come in, the Romans come in, and they're constantly taking land from other powers. And if those powers are sufficient enough, then they try to take it back. They don't just go, well, looks like you won that one. Oh, you won that one too, you won that one too. Pretty soon it's a king sitting on his little throne and he is ruler of nothing. It's why... When land is taken, a king says, we're marshalling the army to take that ground back. And if they don't have the sufficient power or authority, they become a vassal under the other king's power and eventually get absorbed into that empire. Guess what? We have been a vassal state to hostile powers for too long. We do not lack in resources or authority. Jesus said, I've got all authority. His father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not lacking in power. He's not lacking in resources. He's not lacking in authority. And when he comes and talks to us, he baptizes us in his mission. And his mission is the whole planet. It's why churches like this engage in missions. Because there are other territories that need your strength to uh, 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 
Help equip them to take their own land back. Because at the end of the day, it's all the kingdom. I had a dream years ago. In the dream, I was... uh, In the dream, I was uh, I was being sent by my, my basketball coach to coach um, another team. So my coach was sending me to coach. There's some humor in this story. Because um, I had told God at the time, uh, I had jokingly told the Lord, there's two things I never want to do. I never want to pastor, and I never want to coach a girls' basketball team. And so when I was about to become a pastor, he gave me a dream where he's sending me as a coach to a girls' basketball team. But in the dream, I was given an offense and a defense. The offense was the feast of God. The defense was called 1229. And for years, I absolutely had no idea what this was. Because if you've ever played basketball, there is no 1229 defense. And so I was just lost, puzzled. I'm actually getting a revelation right here, right now. It's blasting me. Until I hit Matthew 12, 29. And Jesus says, how does a strong man's house fall unless a stronger man enters and binds that strong man and then you plunder his goods? See, every good coach knows the best defense is a strong offense. And I think part of the reason the Lord gave it to me as what what I'm getting hit with right now is the church has been entirely too feminized. The church has been entirely too domesticated. We take care of our, we, 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 we come together and and like a mother hen nestling her young, we, we, we care for one another, which is so important. It's so important, but it is almost the unique distinction of the church that we are always taking care of one another, which is why pastors have historically had such a hard time telling their people, no, actually, you got to go out there and do the stuff. It is part of the grace and beauty of a woman and a mother to build a home that cares well for the inhabitants of the home, the hearts of the home. But our churches are so feminized in that way that when we come together and take care of one another, we think we're done. And there is a message for the girls' basketball team. There's a strong man out there and there has to be a stronger man that breaks down the door of that house and goes in and binds that strong man and says, you are hereby removed from your authority. You are hereby evicted from this territory. You are no longer given permission to influence people, whether it is the strong man of drug addiction, whether it is the strong man of divorce, whether it is the strong man of cancer, whether it is the strong man of religiosity, whether it is the strong man of poverty, we look and say at many of these things, why do they persist? And it's because we're taking care of each other so much we haven't broken down any doors recently. Now I'm going to say this more than once, but I'm not talking about struggling with flesh and blood. I'm not talking about human enemies. I'm talking about principalities and powers that have to be contended with in the spirit in prayer. But that's another thing we don't do very well. Prayer meetings are the least attended meetings in the church. And when we do come together for prayer, we're praying for Aunt Bertha's big toe. Aunt Bertha's big toe has ruined more prayer meetings than we can imagine. We come together, we set aside an hour, everyone has energy for the first 10 minutes, and then we're struggling. We're like, what do we pray about? Aunt Bertha raises her hand. Let's gather around, we spend 50 minutes praying for the toe. 
Because we're like, oh, thank goodness we have something to pray for. No, there's some homes that need to be invaded. There's some territories that need to be invaded. And, and when we come together, we have authority to go to a place in the spirit that binds the strong man. You know, when, uh, when the Lord told Israel that he was going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, doesn't that sound good? There's such a poetry to that. It's like, wow, a land flowing with milk and honey. Creamy and sweet. I came back with grapes so big that it took men to carry the vines between them. It actually was a blessed, rich, abundant land flowing with milk and honey. What God didn't tell them was you're going to have to fight to get it. He enticed them with something that sounded like, hey, you're leaving Egypt. I'm going to deliver you with miraculous power and I'm taking you to Hawaii. going to be your own little strip of paradise. It's going to be awesome. But yeah, we're going to land of milk and honey. What are those big tall dudes right there? They came away saying, no, it's actually infested with giants. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And a generation died in their unbelief. Because they thought the battle had to be won by them and they had already forgotten the God of the judgments of Egypt. Demonstrating his power to bind the gods of Egypt, to crush the, 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 the powers that held Israel captive, and they get to the promised land, which is their promise. You have a promised land. You have promises that God has given you prophetically in the word in your marriage, for your children. You have promises, and they're like milk and honey to your soul, but there's giants you got to learn to fight. And many of our promises we shrink away from because we don't yet have that, that spirit of the drum in our soul. We don't know how to march when the orders come. We don't know how to contend for something longer than five minutes. takes a while to lay siege. Some things you break through. Some things you wear down. The Lord is raising the people in this hour that know how to weather the storms, persevere through resistance, and overcome. At the end of the book, Revelation, the message, the one constant message to the churches of Revelation is... To the overcomer, I'm going to give this. To the overcomer, I'll give this. The constant message is, be an overcomer. We're like, yes, I want to overcome until there's something to come over. We're like, I kind of want to pray for Aunt Bertha's big toe again. Bless you, Bertha, if you're in the room. <laughs> Well, I'm going to speed up quickly here because I actually haven't gotten to Matthew 16 yet and I want to. So uh, let me just check here real quick. Okay. Uh, if you look in uh, Psalm 2, you don't have to turn there because I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to move quicker. If you look in Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people Imagine a, a vain thing. The kings of the earth basically clench their fists against heaven and say, we aren't going to be under your law or your ways, O God. We resist you. We don't want your rulership. We don't want your word. So the kings of the earth are in a conspiracy. You say, is the, uh, you know, are you a conspiracy theorist? Yeah, based on Psalm 2, I am. Because when the kings of the earth take counsel together, they are conspiring together. There is a conspiracy. The kings of the earth are in active participation with spiritual powers to resist the rulership of Christ. And, and the answer to those kings, the father laughs. 
Oh, what a bad laugh that would be. The father laughs. I wish I could do a James Earl Jones kind of voice right now. The father laughs and he says, here's my answer, kings. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. A son must be given. And how he says it in Psalm 2 is, I have installed my king on Zion. The answer to the rebellious kings is the king, the Lord himself. The father establishes in the person of his son. And what he tells his son is, ask of me and I will give you nations for your inheritance. So here we are in kingship mode again, talking territorially about all of the nations that will be given to the son who is the king, the son who must be given, who is the king, And yet the language is instructive because this isn't a king who prays. When the modality of dominion is to ask of the Father, what we see is not a king who prays, but a priest who rules. It is a king who prays. But what I want to do is elevate your understanding of the privilege of intercession. When Peter says, you are a royal nation, a a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, it means the king and the priest are combined so that in our intercession, we enter into the intercession of Christ and we ask the Father for territory. And he responds to our intercession by binding strong men and releasing land. Thank you for that. We'll talk after. So he comes in his government. Actually, let's look at the next two slides. Romans 16, 20. I want you to personalize this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Next slide. So that means the God with authority to destroy the authority that causes chaos is actually putting the serpent under your feet. That means in your life, you have been commissioned with power, resources, and authority to do the work of establishing peace in your sphere of influence. And when you come together corporately to exert dominion over this territory, there are things in this land that have not yet been liberated because we are still in the process as the body of Christ of learning to tread upon serpents and scorpions. We're still in the process of wielding in intercession something with a contending, prevailing spirit that thinks like a king, thinks territorially, and moves in peace. I actually love that God is a God of peace. But that peace is an aggressive force to conquer evil. Well, I've got to, I've got to move uh, quickly here, so I'm going to do in about five minutes Matthew 16. Now that son is given. Okay? Genesis 3, Isaiah 9, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool. What's a footstool? It's where you put your feet. Guess whose feet he wants to put? Yours, ours. So all of these, this purple thread of dominion, and now that son has been given. He's walking the earth for three years. He walks the earth. Uh, Can we put that, that first slide up? For three years, he walks the earth. And towards the end of his ministry, he's about six months from going to Jerusalem to die. The the first map. Uh, I think that's the second map. Yeah. So in the final travels of Jesus, Matthew 15, you can see one, two, three, four, five, six. That's all in the last six months of his ministry. 
And he comes down, it specifies, after going up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, he comes back down to northern Galilee, which is where he did most of his ministry. You can show the next slide. But then he does something unusual. He goes 26 miles uphill out of the way to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now just hold it right there. 26 miles, I've driven this. You wouldn't want to walk it. Now remember, this is the master rabbi, the wisest man who ever lived. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they could never confound him. He's walking as the logos of God, the manifested God in the flesh. The seed of the woman has come. He just happens to be fully God as well. And he takes 12 guys 26 miles uphill outside the territory of Israel. All along he said, don't go to anyone but the house of Israel. Don't go to the, anyone but the Jews. He made an exception with the Samaritan woman. He made an exception when he went to Tyre and Sidon with the Phoenician woman. But now he goes to a pagan, wicked city. This is a place that the rabbis of the time said no good Jew would go to. Way worse than Samaria. Think New Orleans, San Francisco, uh, uh, you know, Bangkok, Thailand, Hollywood, Babylon. It was just everything you can imagine condensed into one place. You can go to the next slide. This is what it looked like at the time. There were temples butted up against this cliff face. And there's over on the left, you'll see there's a cave over there that that temple butts up against. That cave was uh, considered one of six known portals to the underworld. They called it the Gate of Hades. The temple, uh, uh, well, I'll go into the temples here in just a minute, but in that cave, that's one of the tributaries of the River Jordan. They would go in, perform debaucherous sexual rituals with a goat, and then slaughter the goat. And there were all of these temples, the, the, the cliff face itself is pockmarked with, with uh, uh, you know, recesses and holes and, and they would come and offer, they would light candles or offer food to the gods. Uh, next slide. You had the grotto of the god Pan, the temple of Caesar, the nymphs, Zeus, Nemesis. And this was a, a place on a trade route far to the north that people across the empire would come and visit and they would sacrifice to the gods and take part in all of the rituals. This was a wicked place. And it is very uncharacteristic for Jesus to take 12 young guys to such a wicked place. Next slide. That entire cliff, because it was butted up against with all those temples, that cliff was called the Rock of the Gods. Next slide. This is what it looks like today through those trees. It's very unchanged. Next slide. So that was the rock of the gods and that's the gate of Hades. Now just keep it there. And imagine that you're the disciples and Jesus goes 26 miles uphill out of his way. You're standing somewhere right here and that's the scene behind you. And Jesus says... Who do men say that I am? They go through the list. You know the story. Well, some say you're this. Some say you're that. Okay, okay, okay. That's just the warm-up question, though. That's the icebreaker. Because really what I need to know is who do you say that I am? In every generation, that's the question. What is your revelation of Jesus? What do you personally understand there's many, many aspects, many, many sermons that we could preach. But in this moment, Peter says, you're the guy. You're the Genesis 3, Isaiah 9, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. You're the Christ. Because that's what all of those promised was the Messiah, which was the Jewish word that became Christos, Christ, is Messiah. It's the same word. It means the anointed one and his anointing. And Peter in a moment goes, you're the promised one. 
Because the anointing was for rulership. You anoint the king. You anoint the priest. So you have a priest who prays and a king who takes territory. And Peter says, you're that guy. This is telling me, Dean, stop. It's time to be done. And I'm so I'm going to wrap up. But I, I really want you to get this. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, now that you know who I am, I'm going to give you a revelation of who you are and your mission. He said, Peter, you're so blessed. Now, there had been speculation about him being the Christ before, but Jesus is seeing something in Peter's confession that is a download from the Father. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This isn't you doing some sort of logic and math. You, you just, my father just opened your eyes to see who I am. Yeah, I'm the guy. I'm the son who would be given, and I've got a government on my shoulders, which is why he says, now that you know who I am, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. Now we understand from all of our Bible translations that what he's building is a church. I planted a church, I pastored a church, I love the church, this is a thriving church. But the word church in English is actually so much less robust than the word ecclesia. And in fact, King James required that the word church be used to translate ecclesia even though it's not from the word ecclesia. We teach and preach that church comes from the word ecclesia. I taught it. Seminaries teach it. But it is a known mistranslation. It comes from another word, and it had political reasons for King James to use that word. And so what we've done is built a church culture, and it has brought so much good, so much life, so much needed work in society for the building up of the saints. But the word ecclesia at the time had 400 plus years of a different meaning. Across the Greco-Roman world, the ecclesia was the ruling council of the city-states. So the son who's given, who comes with the government, when his disciples realize who he is, he says, I'm actually going to inaugurate my government right here. Upon this rock... Where's the rock? We try to find a sweet piece of real estate. Jesus took them 26 miles uphill to say, wherever is the hardest, darkest place, wherever other gods rule, wherever you find a strong man, I want my government right there. I want to establish my authority system right there. I want an outpost of prayer. Jesus introduced the word once in Matthew 16, twice more in Matthew 18, between them both. He says, I'm, I'm going to give you keys of the kingdom of heaven. You're going to bind and loose, and whatever you bind and loose on earth is going to be bound or loosed in heaven. He said, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Gates don't attack anything. Gates are attacked. See, we have been far too timid. Why? Because our revelation of Jesus has shrunk to many of his other great and glorious virtues, not, not that those virtues are small, but they've, they've shrunk in the sense of being limited to what he wants to do in us rather than in his lordship and kingly authority what he wants to do through us. So Peter gets it. He sees Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus immediately says, I want to form outposts of prayer in places like this. Wherever the enemy rules, that's exactly where I want to build my ecclesia. Two chapters later, he says, it really, it's only two or three. I only need two or three. If two or three of you will come together, you can bind and loose. If two or three will come together and pray, I'll be right there. I'll be in your midst. The son came with his government and wants us to think and function like that. And I want to gently but firmly say, we have thought like the church far too long. We have built a church culture and a church mindset that is looking to be as far away from the hard, dark place as we can. No, you got to go out of your way, uphill, 
We need the masculine strength and the feminine strength. We need churches that are taking care of people internally and fully equipping people to take ground externally. We need people who know how to pray, to persevere, to overcome. We need people to look at that place and say, whatever that gate of Hades is, you just found your enemy in me and I'm picking a fight. We need people of Matthew 12, 29. They know how to break in. They know how to take territory. And groups of two and three and five and ten, you say, okay, in this place, this is the fight we're taking on. That school board is trying to teach our kids that a little boy can be a little girl and a little girl can be a little boy. And this new board member is, is, is making their entire campaign around that issue. That's my territory, and you aren't going to do it. And so we're taking this up in prayer. We are going to lay hold of whatever is empowering, whatever ideology, whatever principality and power is seeking to manifest through your work and we're going to bring that thing down. You will not rule in this place. Jesus will. It has to touch down just like that. It has to be acres and inches. It's school boards and businesses. It's churches that are outposts for the strengthening of the saints to get ecclesia work done everywhere. That's what Jesus is doing, I believe, in this hour more and more. And I believe that's what a place like this is already. That's why I'm so excited just to be with you. and to, I, I, I want to encourage you to say, I think you're doing it. I think there's ways to do more. But I think you have that temperament, you have that zeal, you have that willingness, and you're already experimenting in, in, in external missions and, and, and in things uh, right here in this area. But I just want to say, keep pushing that envelope. We are in a new era. I don't know that we've been in a period of world history like this since probably the Protestant Reformation. COVID showed how easily the church will roll over. We have put all our eggs in a two-hour basket on Sunday morning. We don't know what to do with the other 166 hours. So take those two hours from us. We're stuck. No, you are not stuck. There's gates of Hades everywhere. It only takes two or three of you to assemble together week after week. We will not stop a battering ram of prayer until we take this ground. And then you start to come with testimony after testimony. The whole region gets influenced. Let's stand. Yuri, I don't know what to do here, so if you have an idea, you just... Oh, we're going to take up an offering. Well, I got I to gotta quick put in a few more miles. Let's just pray and then I'll hand it off. How many of you feel um, encouraged by the word today? Okay. If you're feeling something in the spirit, it is part of the anointing of the anointed one coming on you to say you've been invited to this end time march of God. The marching orders are going out. The drum is pounding. And there's a way that we come into agreement with that. That sound. You know when you march, you march to a cadence. You march to a sound. You march in rhythm. Just extend your hands. I want to just pray over you. God, I'm asking that you would put the sound in our hearts. Put it in mind, God. Put it in this body. This fellowship of the saints. Put a fighting spirit in them. Put a dominion anointing. God, we want to be the hands and feet. We dare to believe that of the increase of your government and of peace, there shall be no end. Therefore, you are establishing a governing mindset in your people to wield the authority that crushes the authority that establishes chaos. God, I'm asking for testimonies of dominion to come out. 
Testimonies of the serpent being crushed under people's feet. Testimonies in school boards and businesses. Testimonies in places of wickedness. I ask for, are there dreamers in the room? How many of you are dreamers? Okay, I'm, I'm going to pray for you, but if you want to be a dreamer, dreams are actually one of the powerful ways that God releases assignments. So he'll give a dream, and now you know your target. And then he gives other dreams to speak to it. It's part of the keys of, 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 of the kingdom that he gives. God, I'm asking for the release of dreams. God, let the dreamers dream. Let the old men see visions and the young men dream dreams. God, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit here at Freedom, God. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Pour out your spirit. Raise up the dreamers. Give them clarity in their dreams. Make their dreams assignments that they would feel the burden and the joy and the responsibility for. Give them the anointing of dreams for their families, for the marketplace, whatever and wherever they find themselves. God, I'm asking for you to release dreams across this room. Don't be surprised if somebody of you start to dream in a new way. I prayed for dreams for many, many uh, uh, churches and for people, and there's an, an anointing on my life to pray for dreams. So I want you to lay hold of this with faith. God, loose dreams on this place. We're asking for keys of the kingdom to bring down gates of Hades. Assignments that can be taken up in prayer. Raise this fellowship to be overcomers in the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.